0: Today we, uh, we also have the opportunity to have Tyler Johnson, who's the lead pastor of All Redemption, come and start us in this new series that we're in called Cultural Countercultural Convictions. Uh, we're gonna spend the next several weeks looking at these important aspects of um, these convictions that we hold that are unique in the world. So he's getting us started. Our first topic is on love. And we thought that this would be a great guy to start it off because he really does embody it. Um, Tyler is one of my favorite humans, not just because of his character, but also because he looks like a cross between Drew Brees, Christian Bale, and like what I imagine the Apostle John would look like. (laughs) So go ahead and give him a hand as he comes up. Yeah. Let's... Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word and that you would speak through Tyler today. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Well, good to see you all. My wife would totally disagree that I look like Christian Bale. I just say you not know that. She would be like, there is not a chance you look that good, but neither, no, she would say I look good. Just Christian Bale, it's like, that's, that's very kind of Jim to say, Um if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. I saw AC was about to read, so I'm actually going to ask you to come back up here because there is no, you got to come up. I want you to read this. 1 John 4, 10 through 12. He is way too good of a scripture reader. And if I'm here, I'm going to hear this read. So 1 John 10 through 12.
0: Please uh, stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is 1 John 4, 10 through 12.
1: So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. If you're newer to the Bible or you've been around the Bible a long time but you're embarrassed and don't feel like you know it that well, do not be embarrassed to turn to the table of contents to find out where 1 John is. It's towards the end of uh, the Bible, not the very, very end, but towards the end, 1 John chapter 4. We're actually going to look at verses 6 through 21 in this topic of love that's kicking off a series called counter cultural convictions. So many of the convictions that come out of God's heart as expressed to us in the Scriptures, what we call the Bible, really are countercultural. The Apostle Paul makes a statement in the book of Romans chapter 12 where he says, don't be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And through the renewal of your mind, you will begin to understand what the good and pleasing will of God is. And that statement really shows us that all of us at different levels are conformed to the way the world thinks. It's just very hard for us to understand where our thinking is being conformed to the patterns of the world rather than to the ways of God. So This series is an opportunity for us to take a series of topics and say, this is how God is expressing his heart to us through these issues. Issues like we'll start with love, and then we'll get to Jesus, the Bible, we'll talk about gender and sexuality, we'll talk about the vulnerable and the oppressed. And what you see throughout the Bible is that the beginning point of so many of straight shooting truth is love. So that same Apostle Paul who spoke in Romans 12 about don't be conformed to the world actually speaks to this man named Timothy in two separate letters. And in these letters, he's really speaking about how we should conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is the church. And he says things like preach the word in season and out out of season. And as you preach the word, be ready because people won't like it. Because in the last days, people will want to accumulate for themselves people that itch their ears and say what they want them to hear. He's saying in the last days, people will gather together in tribes and echo chambers with just with people that are saying what they want to hear, and they'll go, yes, yes, yes. So he says straight things like that. But when he begins the letter, First Timothy, he says, the goal of our instruction is love. The goal of all of this, other versions say, the aim of our charge is love from a pure heart, a sound mind, and a good conscience. So the place that we have to start when we speak about countercultural convictions is love. The question is, what really is love from God's perspective? So I'm going to pray right now that God would reveal to us what that is. Father, we pray right now for revelation. I ask you for the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would give us the Holy Spirit as you promised. You told us how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so collectively, we ask you, God, for the Holy Spirit. We pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful things that come from your word. I pray that you'd give us clarity about reality. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm preparing this message and... Been thinking about it a long time. This is a topic, this topic of love, that I um, I really want to make my life's mission. And I think through this morning, you'll begin to see why. But as you prepare for this, and as you think about love, it's on your mind a lot when you're preparing to speak about something. So last night I was putting my kids to bed, and we're kind of one of those crazy people that had four children. Um, my wife oftentimes. We'll be going to bed. And she's like, we had too many kids. And I'm like, well, babe, we love all of them. And she's like, meh. I'm like, ah, not totally certain about that. But when you have four kids, you really see the difference in personality in your children. So my youngest daughter is like huge personality, really loud, um, really aggressive There's books written about her, like, raising the strong-willed child, right? Like, so she is that to the core. And then all the way to the top, I have a son who's 14 years old. He has long red hair, like, amazing red hair, but he's 14, so he doesn't wash it correctly. And if you've ever seen this old movie, which some of you have seen, it's called Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's super old. Don't ever tell anybody that your pastor mentioned that from stage. So I watched it, so you don't have to, right? So, um... But there's this guy in that that's a surfer, and they call him Spicoli. And the other night, my buddy was like, Braden's like Spicoli. It's, you know, hey man, you know, do you think you should brush your teeth? I don't know, man. Like, I just, so he's that kid, right? So last night, I'm putting my kids to bed, and Braden's there. I'm moving through their rooms, kind of are in like a crescent moon. And I hit Braden's first, and he's an adolescent, so he's sleeping a lot. So he's getting ready for bed, and I'm getting ready to. His lights in the room are out. I'm getting ready to click off this lamp. And he goes, Dad, will you hug me? And he does this all the time. And so I go over and I hug him. And as I hug him, even though his hair is greasy, I take my hand and I kind of run it through his hair. And there's something that happens in a moment like that that's way beyond just, Tyler, be a good dad. Tyler, be a good dad. It's an experience of love that's coming together in one simple moment that you begin to feel like, I'm touching something really significant. Then as I walk out of that room, my other son's watching the end of the Oregon U of A game because if U of A loses, which, just let me get this in, they did, ASU's first in the conference of basketball, right? So so he's watching the game because we had just gone to the ASU basketball game, and he's under there, and he looks up, and I'm like, I love you, bud. And he takes enough time to be like, I love you, Dad. Then I walk out, and Lucy's sitting right there, and she's in her little hat to go to sleep, and she's like, love you, Dad. And then Harmony comes running out. Dad! dad, I want a hug, wham, like hits me, boom, right? And even in that moment, I'm like, babe, I love you, and I kiss her on the forehead. And in all of those experiences, there's a mystery to love, but there's a nature of it really is getting me to touch something. Then I walk down the stairs, my wife's on the phone, because our, le- our ceiling of our room, who above that's the bathroom of the girl's bathroom, it's leaking now, and she's trying to fix something, and I have all these thoughts that come into my head about my wife, And I know it's because I'm preparing this, I'm not like this all the time, but I look at her and I remember that in the last 10 years, she's lost both of her parents, whom she was very, very close with. And I remember sitting on our bathroom floor after we lost her mother and her just weeping and the spirit giving me the wherewithal to be like, just shut your mouth and just be with her. And in those moments of deep, deep pain, but because you love your wife so much, you touch something. Like, that's really profound. And yes, we'd call it love, but love's getting me into something deeper, something like reality, right? And then I think about how she sat with me when her father passed away, this man that was my pastor. He was my boss at times, but he very much was a father figure and candidly one of my best friends in the world, And I think about that love, and I look at her as she's talking on the phone about our ceiling dripping with water from the girl's bathroom, and I think, this is the woman I experience physical intimacy with in unbelievable ways, and that's called love as well. All of these forms of love are why C.S. Lewis, to express what the Bible spoke about in love, wrote a book called The Four Loves. But all of it, I'm touching something profound, and it reminded me... Of this phrase I heard, the first time I ever heard it was by Cornel West. And it's this statement that love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality. I went on to understand that was actually him quoting Martin Luther King Jr. Love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality. And all of those moments from strumming my hands through greasy red hair, which, by the way, if it was washed would be the best hair on the planet, right? All the way to my daughter running into me and my wife working on the family's behalf. All of this was, it's like, what is this? It's significant. It's ultimate reality. Love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality. Now, John the apostle who pens 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, most people would say he's also the gospel writer of John. At the end of his life, There's a church historian named Jerome that pens a story about the Apostle John. John the Evangelist, he calls him. And at the end of his life, John was living in Ephesus. And his body was so frail and so weak that people would have to pick him up to take him to the corporate gathering of church. And his body was so frail, he couldn't even speak with hardly any volume at all. What they said is they would carry him. He would repeat this phrase, and he would say, little children love one another. Little children love one another. And whenever he got around people, all the experts and theologians of the day knew they were dealing with the Apostle John, so they'd ask him questions. What about this, and what about this? And they said every time his answer was, little children love one another. As Jerome records, there's a story at that time where the people that are around get annoyed. Like, why does he always say the same thing? He has so much to say. Why does he always say the same thing? So they finally just go, John, why? Why every time do we ask you, do you, the same, do you say the same thing over and over and over? And he said, dear children, if you obey this one command, love one another, you get it all. Which is exactly what Jesus said. Which is exactly what the other, Authors of the epistles, which are the letters of the New Testament, when it all boils down, it boils down to love. Paul said it this way that when it's all said and done, there's three things faith, hope, and love. Now, faith's a pretty big thing, right? right? I mean, if we're Christians, we would say this is our faith. Faith is what saves us by grace. That same Paul said, faith's a big deal. Then he says hope, and hope is the thing. He also said in the book of Romans, will never put us to shame, never. So faith and hope are big deals. When it's all said and done, abide in these three, faith, hope, and love. But then he says this, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. In the book of Galatians, it says, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. Love is no minor matter when it comes to who Jesus is. When he's asked, what's the greatest of all the commandments? He says, love God with all your everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. All of the law, all of the prophets, which means all of the Old Testament, are fulfilled in this statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, it's all over the Bible. The crazy part to me is I'm now kind of within what people would call seminary or education in the Bible, theological education. I don't know if once, the truth is, never once have I seen a course on love. Ever. And at many times now in the church, Christians are scared of it. Like, well, if you just start talking about love, things are going to get really mushy and we're going to lose truth. We're gonna talk about the great barriers to what John the Evangelist here in 1 John is actually saying. So let's just start. In verse six, he says this, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the concern, right? The concern is, if you start talking about love, you're gonna fall into error potentially. And we might lose truth. But he says it's actually by this, which you're going to see in a minute, by this is love, that we discern truth from error. So let me just start and say that again. It's by this, by love, that we actually discern the spirit of error from the spirit of truth. But he starts and he says, we are from God. The statement to the church, and every time the Bible's written, it's written to the people of God. And the people of God are those who are from God. But this is one of the big questions when it comes to the church. One of the big questions is what's real and what's not real. When we get out in the midst of the world, there'll be this statement all the time, oh, they're hypocrites. And I want to say this up front so you know, even those of us who are from God, who God's really done a work in our hearts, we are in the midst of being perfected, we're not perfect. Can I get an amen? We're in the midst of being perfected. We're not perfect. So the same Paul that I've mentioned often says that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that's kind of this Christian way of saying everything happens for a reason. And when you're in the midst of those moments, you're like, it'd be really nice to know what that reason is. Or to use the language of Paul, the purpose is. And the next verse says we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's the purpose. That all things, whether they be good or bad, whether they they happen when we're young or when we're older, all for the purpose of making us like Jesus. Everything. So in the midst of that, we're being conformed. We're not fully formed. We're being perfected. We're not perfect. So when they say you're all hypocrites, you go, even those of us, who are from God, yes. We don't live up to our confession, even when the scriptures say, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We know we fail. As we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank God that the Lord is the one who saves. But there's also a deeper question, and it's this question of, but are these people really authentic, Warren Williams, who's uh, just become a pastor on staff, when he does his music, he calls himself the artificial Christian, and you're like, that guy just became our pastor, right? But it's testifying to something of we're not there yet, but there really is a real question of what's real and not. C.S. Lewis says, you sitting in a church no more makes you a Christian than me standing in a garage makes me a car. So the question is, well, how do we identify the authentic from that which is artificial? What is that ultimately? But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, that word means loved ones. He's going to begin to get in now to what authenticity is based in. What assurance, how you know or you question whether or not you're a Christian. And let me just say this as we get into this. So you know the logic of the Bible. The logic of the Bible is that all of us that are in here should examine ourselves to see if we're actually in the faith, if it's real. It's not a moment for you to examine everybody else around you, in your family, and outside of whether or not they're in the faith. Be very careful the moment you hear messages or you walk out in the world or you listen to social media. There's no way you're a Christian if. But you're not a Christian if. The question should be, am I? Beloved, loved ones, let us love one another. That seems like obvious logic, right? You who've been loved, loved ones, love The way God said it to Abraham is blessed ones, bless. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Participate with me here for a minute. How many of you have ever heard the phrase born again Christian? Now you can put your hands down, continue to participate with me. What comes to your mind when you hear the term born again Christian? Well, depending upon your experience, I know what it would be in the world, and it'd be like, those people are crazy, right? They're lunatics. The word wouldn't be love. And yet, John, who's actually the one the majority of our terminology about being born again comes from, most would argue he's also the gospel writer who said, recorded Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He speaks of it here and he says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever, what? Loves has been born of God and knows God. So right away we go, how do we know if we know God? How do we know if we've actually had a real encounter with God that has changed us from the inside out, which is what we mean by born again, born of the spirit. We love Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I really appreciate this at the very end of this section in verse 21 which you don't need to turn there on the screen but Eugene Peterson in his translation paraphrase translation the message says this in verse 21 the command we have from Christ is blunt. I love that. It's not unclear. How do we so easily miss this command to love your neighbor as yourself? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. That's the way he says it. You can go down the actual way in the version we're in says, and this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's blunt. It's blatantly clear. So let's look how clear it gets here in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because, here's the rationale, because God's love. We're going to get to the rationale in a minute, but I want to read this verse three times. I'm going to do it because this is where I'm like, I'm going to be blunt. I don't want to be unclear, and I'm going to be blunt just by reading a verse, okay? Three times. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Anyone who does not love, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So now we come at the rationale, the logic if you will. Of John. And he's just saying this. Already he said love comes from God, but love flows from God because God is love. This is the historic teaching of God in Christianity. This reality that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing for eternity, with no beginning and with no end, forever in love with one another in self sacrificial self deferential exalting the other ahead of themselves love it's why churches are named holy family is the expression of the family the congregation is a reflection of the church before the church the nature of god the trinity father son and holy spirit god is love. It's why he then can't but so love the world. He can't but stand in the midst of this and speak true things because the truth will set us free. He can't but warn of misdirection and speak of the horrors of sin that fracture love. Sin is anti-love Read the end of Romans 12, 13, 14. One of the densest, people would say, most theological books in the world. Read the end of it. See the conclusion. Sin is anti-love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't owe God because God is love. It is God's nature. The big word for this would be his ontology. God doesn't just act in love. He is love. And this is love. God was made manifest among us. Why? Why was God made manifest among us? Let me just stop here for a minute and do not feel weird if you don't know the answer to this question. But how was God made manifest amongst us? those of you who know, how? In whom? Jesus, right? So, And, and this is exactly what John 3:16 says. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God was made manifest amongst us because of love. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now think about that for a minute. God so loved the world that God was made manifest among us in Jesus. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So that we might live through love that we might live through love because God is love. Look at the end of verse 8. Now, here's where this gets really interesting when you think about God. We live by living through love, through God. Don't be unclear. Through God. But God is also the one. The book of Colossians and the book of Hebrews says the whole world is holding together, consisting is the language of Colossians, in God. And God is love. So you could easily say the world holds together in love, or love holds the world together, which is why MLK said love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality, right? Because love is the key that unlocks the door to God. That's holding the world together by the word of his power. That everything in the universe consists, holds together in God, a God who is love. So now we begin to ask this question. What's love? Right? This is, you guys remember that old song? What is love? Baby don't hurt. Right? There's there's questions that come out in music all the time. I want to know what love is, right? You guys, I'm way too old for you guys, but you can look these songs up. They're actually pretty amazing when you listen to the lyrics of them, but this is a question in our culture. Like, what is love? Who gets the claim and to stake the claim on love? This is right away where we get it, like the Great Barrier Reef. Like, what are the great barriers to real love? Well, the first one is this, that we think we're big enough And we understand enough in our finite period of time and in our finite selves to define that which is infinite. That we actually can define love. Because we live in a time right now that is saying love is God. Folks, that's a problem. The reason is is if we say love is God, we fill in the meaning for love. This is why St. Augustine said we have to rightly order our loves. Love God with all your everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Surrender, bow the knee to God because he is love who defines love. So right now, John's saying, okay, I've been talking about love and this is love. I'm going to define it for you. Not that we have loved God. Love doesn't start with us. It starts with God. Love isn't defined by us. It's revealed through God because he is love. In this is love, not that we loved God. Our love of God, trying to obey Jesus' greatest commandment, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, doesn't begin with us. It begins with God because God is love. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son into our mess to be the propitiation. Other translations say the expiation, right? To be the one that gets us out of the mess of our sin, that takes upon sin upon himself because he so loves the world. He sent his son to take all of God's anger against that which destroys love in the world and places upon it, it upon his son. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, So in this is love. One of the great barriers is we set ourselves up as the originators or the definers of love. That's one of the the great barriers. There's another great barrier to love. And in this, I'm going to move us down to verse 16 in this passage. This is another great barrier to love. And I want you guys to really hear this because this applies to everybody in here. but perfect love casts out fear. Go to verse 19. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now go back to verse 18. The other great barrier to love is fear. Now, fear manifests itself in all kinds of ways. I'm going to try to succinctly define a few. The first one is this. We're all terrified to be wrong. Terrified. On every side of the ideological thinking spectrum, we're scared to be wrong. Really conservative Christians, in the end, will say, but we gotta talk about truth, but we gotta talk about truth. And in the end, when you listen to them, they're terrified to be wrong. But fear has to do with judgment and with punishment. Our fear to be wrong, even last night when we're playing cards with friends and we're talking about where somewhere is in the world, when it comes up that we may have been wrong, we backtrack and try to cover it because we're scared to death. We fear being wrong because being wrong may incur the punishment of our friends. Right? We may be called out for being a fool. Fear has to do with judgment and with punishment and with bad things happening. And this is all over our culture, and it's all in the church. And here's what it is, is that we place, I'm going to use a big word here, forensics over love. Now, if you think about forensic science, forensics is right and wrong. How do you determine in a crime scene who did it? What actually happened? We got to be right and we got to be wrong. Well, in our world, we're terrified to be wrong and we're scared. So this is where we get the ideology or the thinking, the thinking in the church that Christians against love. Well, if we start talking about love, things are going to get really mushy and we're going to lose everything. That's not what it said before. It said actually loves the way we discern the spirit of error from the spirit of truth. But the problem there is we're putting being right and wrong over love that's not what the Apostle Paul does in this very famous passage of 1 Corinthians 13. He actually says there, love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, it rejoices in truth. And it does because the truth sets us free. So when we stand up in this series and we begin to speak things that many people go, I don't like that, the truth sets us free. But it's love that directs the pursuit of truth. The minute our pursuit of truth sits in our minds and in our hearts above love, I'll start by saying this, it does because of fear. Because we go, oh, in the end, but what if I stand before God and I'm wrong? We're all going to be wrong. (laughs) I promise you, you just don't know where it is. You just don't know where it is that you're ultimately going to be wrong. Or another side that doesn't believe in God would be like, you want to be on the wrong side of history? And so we're scared to die. I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And we begin to spout things out in social media and we begin to work left and right, all the while missing all the people that are in proximity to us because we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. But it's fear that's driving us, not love. Fear has to do with judgment and has to do with punishment. But when you know you're loved at the deepest possible level by God, it creates in you a non-anxious presence. This reality where I'm not constantly scared that I'm going to step off the cliff of being wrong, it goes, I know I'm wrong and God's loved me anyways. I know I failed and God loves me anyways, so now I can sit still, see people, and watch people. Fear also has nothing to do with love. There's a recent story, I'm not trying to gain Twitter followers here, but I just posted it this morning in case anybody was interested in it that came in early February out of Surrey, British Columbia, and it was this picture that went viral of this older woman holding this man's hand, and if any of you saw it, the story is that the man got on public transportation, and he was going crazy. People said he clearly had mental health issues, he was screaming out loud, looked very much like he was beginning, going to get violent was mad at everybody, was kicking things, was doing whatever. So what did everybody do? I mean, what would you do, right? Like, let's go to the other side of the train. So everybody began to pull away, but there was one woman sitting there, and he's at, like, the entrance door of the public transportation. And she's sitting right here, and everybody around her gets away. And the guy that writes the article, or you can watch the video, says she's sitting there, and she just reaches out her hand. The man doesn't take her hand. And then after a few minutes, the man, in his screaming and in his yelling, in his flailing everywhere, grabs her hand. The guy says out of about five to six minutes, he's so scared. He's like, I don't want to take a picture, but my God, I want to take a picture. I want to take a picture. I want to take a picture. So he takes a picture. She holds the man's hand for 20 minutes. And what do you think happened to the man? He totally calmed down. He got totally quiet. He began to sit down. After 20 minutes, when he leaves, he looks at the woman and he goes, thanks, grandma. It wasn't the man's grandma. And he left. So the man that took the picture asked the woman, why did you do this? And she said, I have kids. I've made a ton of mistakes and they've made a ton of mistakes. But I knew he needed somebody not to say something, but to physically and tangibly express love to him. Now I don't know if you know this, that's a powerful story and it's all over Jesus. Jesus looks at people, he feels with them and he touches the untouchable. He looks at the unlookable. He speaks to the social outcast. He speaks to the people everybody hates, even if they're rich like Zacchaeus. He's constantly engaging them, and through his eyes, through his ears, through his heart, and through his touch, through a shared table, people change. And as people begin to follow him, and he's doing this because he's God, and God is love. If somebody asks me right now, boil the whole Christian faith down. I've come up with three points. If you want to type them into your phone, I think you should, not because I'm smart, because these are really easy, but I am convinced. These three things articulate the essence of faith in Christ. Jesus is God. God is love. That's one and two. Jesus is God, one. God is love, two. Three, God said love one another. Jesus being God, who is love, expresses love to people and turns the world literally upside down. As we begin to follow that, We touch the depths of reality. We begin to see the nature of God, which calms us to love. Because fear has nothing to do with love. And perfect love, dwelling with God, receiving from God. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear to touch a man on a train. Fear to step out and speak on behalf of justice. That same Cornell West, whom I heard the line, love is the key that unlocks the door to ultimate reality, is the man that said, justice is what love looks like in public. I'm willing to step up in the midst of that. I'm willing to sit at a table and love someone with a different political persuasion whom I'm convinced is taking the world to hell in a handbasket. Jesus goes so far to say, even those you think are your enemies, how are you supposed to treat them? Love them the same way you love your neighbor. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're crazy about talking, give them an ear. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Lend them your presence. And you go, but that's like impossible. Like, love is really hard. We may have said this once already, but is love hard? Yes, like really, really hard, which is why in verse 13, he says, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. His spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. His spirit, love flows from God. His spirit residing in us is what enables us to love our children, our spouses, our teachers, our bosses our extended family, it enables us to go to Thanksgiving dinner and not just sit in a corner on our phone. It enables us to reach out a hand to those who are struggling with mental illness. That same love that's poured in us allows us to say, I was wrong. That spirit is what we appeal to when we say, Lord, give us the Holy Spirit. He says, how much more will I give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The greatest thing you can ask for is that which leads you to love. Folks, there's nothing in all of my gut of guts that as the lead pastor of Redemption Arizona, I long for more than a church who attempts and tries to love by receiving the love of God, by dwelling. That's that word abide. It means just to dwell. If we dwell in love, if we dwell in love, much more is going to go right than goes wrong. This is why my wife and I have over our kitchen table that I can look at after every time I scream at my kids. Love never fails. And I sit at that moment and go, I'm going to screw my kids up because I yelled at them. I'm going to screw, screw them up because I'm leaking all my stuff all over them. I'm going to screw them up because my anxiety is being dispelled upon them at every level. And <clears throat> I just hear the Bible saying to me, because that's a verse in the Bible, love Never fails. Point them to the infinite love of God. And then when you screw up, His love being poured out for you, you dwelling in His love, allows you to go to them and go, I stink. I messed up, but I'm trying. I love you, like that kid's novel says, to the moon and back. And at the end of the day, I believe to the gut of my guts, to the deepest part of my being, that love doesn't fail. If we're a church like that, folks, I promise you, Jesus will be seen even a little bit better. This phrase right at the end of this section that we read, that AC read, says, In this is love, verse 10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, you also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. This is what we want, right? Even if you're in this room, you go, I don't even know if I believe in God. If he's there, you want to see him. And here's the thing, those of us who have seen him want other people to see him. No one has ever seen God. Why does he say that? But then he says this, but no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us. That's as close as it gets inside you, not near you, in us. And his love is perfected in us if we love I don't know how many of you guys have ever read uh, Les Mes or watched the movie, but Victor Hugo penned this amazing line that's become very popular. And it says, to love another person is to see the face of God. I am absolutely convinced Victor Hugo, who was a Christian, was reflecting upon that passage. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, his love abides and is perfected within us. So right now, as we come to this table, this table of communion that we're about to partake of as we sing these last three songs, is a table of God's love for the world. Is his table not just in love for the world, but for us, his body broken, his blood shed in love for us. Father, as we come to this table, I pray that your spirit would move us and touch us in ways that human words never could. Display your love for us that we might love our neighbors. In Christ's name we pray, amen.